Hey, I'm Tommy Chong. Welcome to High on Homegrown. Yes, yes, everybody, and welcome to High on Homegrown, the cannabis podcast from Percy'sGrowRoom.com. In this week's interview, we have the pleasure of speaking to another legend from the cannabis world. And if there is anybody who is an expert on cannabis, it is this guy. And this is Ethan Russo. He has studied cannabis for a long time, been involved with loads of studies, and he just knows loads of stuff, not just about cannabis, but about neurology, psychopharmacology, medicinal plants, just loads of stuff. And it's a really good interview. Unfortunately, I was a little bit ill when we recorded this interview. I had a cold on this day and I didn't want to let Dr. Russo down. You know, we had scheduled it for a while, so it was on the calendar. I know he's a busy guy, so I didn't want to interfere with his schedule. So he went ahead and did the interview anyway, and it turned out to be a super good one. So roll yourself a couple of fat ones and get ready to enjoy this interview with Dr. Ethan Russo. And I'll speak to you at the end of this. See you in a bit. Hello. Hello. Hello, Dr. Russo. Thank you very much for joining us today. You bet. Now, is this uh, audio only or are we going to have video as well? Uh, the podcast only goes out as audio, but you can leave your camera on if you want to, or you can turn it off if you prefer. Whatever you're comfortable with. We're, we're easy either way. Um. Well, I don't need to look at myself. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, let me. Um, I'm not used. To, here we go. All right. Nice. Got it. I'm still right. looking at myself, but it's a still. Yeah, that's it. But it's still, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, it's very cool. And it's a massive pleasure to get you on the show. You are, if there's anybody who is a cannabis expert, it is Dr. Ethan Russo. You've written loads of books. You've been involved in loads of studies and you're well-researched in the topic. So, you know, it's just a big pleasure to have you on the show, Dr. Russo. And just say thank you again for coming to join us. Well, me. Sure. No. You bet. I'll quickly introduce myself so you know who you're talking to. I am Mackie. I am from the UK. I'm the host of High on Homegrown. Uh, usually we have Monkey Do joining us as well. He's from the USA, but he's uh, he's over on holiday right now. He's going to see the eclipse. Uh, he's uh, ah. he's not here today. But yeah, that's me. I'm Mackie from the UK. And you are Dr. Ethan Russo. So do you want to introduce right. yourself to the people listening so they know who you are and, and how much of a legend uh, sure. you are? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, my my primary career was as a neurologist, pediatric and adult. Um, but uh, after seven years in practice, somewhere along 1990, um, I was really disenchanted with the kind of results we were getting with conventional medicine in trying to treat complex neurological conditions. Uh, I thought it was time to broaden the field and bring back in medicinal plants. Um, to make a long story short, this ended up with me taking a sabbatical in the rainforest in the Amazon in Peru um, a short time in 1994 and then a longer sojourn in 1995. When I came back, uh, it was 1996 and Prop 215 in California was uh, being initiated. Uh, for people that aren't aware, that was the... Um, uh, ballot initiative that made um, medicinal cannabis legal in California and really was the catalyst mm -hmm. to similar developments elsewhere in the States and to some extent abroad. Um, anyway, I became very uh, enamored of the field, the complexity and beauty of cannabis uh, as a scientific topic and certainly the endocannabinoid system. And it quickly transitioned into a second career. Um, so basically, I, at this point, I've been involved in cannabis research and development for 27 years. Uh, 11 wow. of that was full-time with GW Pharmaceuticals, the British firm that uh, brought mm -hmm. Sativex and Epidiolex to the world. Uh, so those are the only two cannabis-based pharmaceuticals at this point. Uh, all in all, it was a 16-year hitch with them. Well, so you oversaw um, the production of Sativex. You, you were researching 
the effects it was having on people. Was that your role in well, CTVEX? Sure. I my role was as senior medical advisor, and that that took in a lot of territory. Um, mm. so I was involved in 25 phase one to phase three clinical trials of Sativex and Epidiolex, and that ran mm. the range: multiple sclerosis, pain treatment, cancer pain treatment. Um, subsequently, um, in treatment of epilepsy with Epidiolex, which is 97% pure CBD. Uh, additionally, I was a liaison to basic scientists around the world that were receiving research grants from GW to uh, give us the early indications of what some of the other cannabinoids could do. So a lot of the studies of cannabidiol, cannabigerol, tetrahydrocannabivirin, um, were underwritten by GW. Uh, so this is in the 2000s and 20-teens. Um, so, uh, and it involved a lot of travel around the world. Uh, mm -hmm. At this point, let's see. Um, I've been in something like either um, lecturing or consulting in 60 countries, um, and about 50 U.S. states and Canadian provinces. So, wow, there is only 50 was states, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I included yeah. the Canadian provinces. So, right. yeah, I haven't hit everywhere. <laughs> but that's uh, that's a long list of different countries you've been to, though. It's very impressive. Sure. So, so how, how did it go from because uh, you were a neurologist and then you started to study uh, different cannabis medicines? But was it specifically cannabis you were looking at or were there other plant medicines that you were studying at the same time but you sort of directed yourself towards right. cannabis well certainly in the rainforest cannabis wasn't in the mix at all um mm -hmm. i was studying indigenous plants used by the machigenga people primarily uh in parque nacional del manu which is in the southeast part of the country in the amazon uh, so they had their own agents, and I was most interested in psychoactive plants and particularly ones that would treat migraine headaches. Uh, right. So that was the initial focus, and uh, believe me, we found a lot, um, things that uh, still yet could be developed. Um, but uh, when I get back to the States, uh, again, the focus uh, mainly shifted uh, to cannabis, and I've always been involved in study of other medicinal plants. And it may interest people to know that there are many plants other than cannabis that have effects on the endocannabinoid system. Uh, so that's been a fascinating area of investigation in its own right. And the other plants produce cannabinoids that affect the endocannabinoid system. Is that what you're saying? Um, yes, in some instances, cool. or they affect the enzymes that break down uh, the endocannabinoids. Um, there can be various effects. But earlier this year, for example, there was an elegant study done about um, a South African daisy called Helichrysum umbraculigerum. And it was previously reported about 30 years ago that they found cannabigerol and cannabigerolic acid in this plant. But it was initially thought it was just trace amounts, um, but a, a new team looked at it more intensively and found um, a vast array of cannabinoid substances, some of which are not even in cannabis. Um, wow. So, and there's a good likelihood that some of these or many of these may be uh, useful medicinally. And just to put it in context, um, there have been 150 different compounds called cannabinoids found in cannabis, and we really know something about the pharmacology of only about 12 of these. So there's plenty yet to do. Whoa. That's crazy. I didn't know there was uh, other plants that produce different cannabinoids. That's very cool. Sure. Now, uh, for the most part, they, there are no other plants so far found that make THC. Uh, right. But to give another example, there's a compound somewhat like it uh, that's been found in a liverwort uh, in New Zealand, um, uh, radulum marginata, it's called. So that's the right. good news. The bad news is 
it grows like a millimeter a year. It's rare <laughs> to begin with. And um, yeah, it, it it's never going to be something that could be cultivated um, and put into use. Um, mm. But uh, still fascinating uh, because the liverworts, of course, are very primitive forms of plants and quite yeah. different uh, to cannabis. Yeah, very different, uh, slow growing. You know, and as you sure. say, rare as well. And cannabis is kind of everywhere. Yeah, at this point. Yeah. So, do you, as well as cannabis and uh, and the plants in the rainforest, what about fungi? There's been evidence to show that using psilocybin treats depression and things like that and can possibly replace SR, SSRIs, I think they're called. Right. Well, do you look into that kind of thing? I've been in that area for 50 years. Um, wow. Yeah, interestingly, the Machiganga people uh, didn't use a lot of mushrooms, to my awareness. Mm. Um, however, uh, people are probably quite cognizant at this point. There's a tremendous amount of recent work done uh, with psilocybin on uh, some of the other psychedelics for their great promise in psychiatric disease. Mm. But, um, you know, this, this always was an in area of interest to me because... Um, for example, the ergot alkaloids that come from rye fungus, claviceps purpurea, um, these were extensively studied by the Sandoz company in Switzerland uh, decades ago. This was what Albert Hoffman uh, was doing when he discovered mm -hmm. uh, LSD, which is a semi-synthetic, but there are plenty of ergot alkaloids um, that treated headache also that were um, psychedelic at higher doses. Mm. Um, so when I went to the rainforest, that was a thread of which I was aware that historically um, plant medicines that were hallucinogenic at high doses were often useful in treating headache at much, much lower doses. Um, mm -hmm. So that that's really how I got my my start. Um, and come, things are coming full circle. We're still interested um, in psychedelic plants and how they might uh, be developed as pharmaceutical uh, drugs as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think that these substances used to be used as medicine uh, like a long time ago and we lost the knowledge or something? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, humans have this terrible habit of doing more on one another and um, <laughs> yeah, the knowledge of the ages keeps getting buried. Um, mm. and this is one reason that we have uh, hundreds of names for cannabis. Um, right. but certainly, uh, one of my hobbies or obsessions, if you will, uh, has been historical medical uses of cannabis and it's extensive. It's just more than people would normally imagine. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're in the unenviable position of having to relearn things that our ancestors knew already. Yeah. Do you think that's down to it being stigmatized for so long, especially over the 20th century from the mid 1900s? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And as usual, um, this was an American policy that uh, basically got spread over the planet. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there were other countries definitely that were imposing prohibitions, but it was most mostly spearheaded uh, by American officials. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's a shame. It definitely added a, a lot of stigma to cannabis. Absolutely. So is there a lot of studies being done in the USA now? Because I know it's still illegal federally, still Schedule 1, right? But maybe it'll um, be Schedule 3 soon. But... Yeah, it, it remains very difficult. No, that's mm -hmm. a big part of it. Um, yeah. Until recently, all of the material had to come from the federal government, and there were real issues with the supply, basically, to be charitable let's say that the cannabis supplied by the government was not representative of what was available elsewhere and what patients might be using. Mm -hmm. um, so real qualitative differences. Um, and Schedule 1 in the United States is a designation that never fit. Um, it means mm -hmm. that the drug is dangerous, addictive, and has no recognized medical usage. So it was actually never true, um, and it certainly isn't true now, and yet um, it remains in that schedule. What that means on a practical basis to do uh, research in the U.S. with 
uh, cannabis or THC requires a Schedule One license and storing the material inside a refrigerator that's locked, that's in a room that's locked with limited access and uh, surveillance and subject to expense. I'm sorry, subject to inspections uh, by the Drug Enforcement Administration. Mm-hmm. So it's a very difficult uh, thing to study. Yeah. Um, if it it doesn't belong at Schedule Three either, I would maintain that really is a designation that's designed for a Food and Drug Administration approved drug um, that has some addiction potential but doesn't need such tight controls. However, if they did impose that designation on cannabis, it would make it a little easier to do research. Um, It also might mean that businesses um, could get bank accounts and not be subject to the Mm -hmm. dangerous uh, cash commerce that's in play now and has led to a whole bunch of associated crime. It's crazy the rules that are in place right now. Yeah, and I understand it's not a lot better in uh, the UK. Oh, yeah, Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's ironic to me, having worked all those years for a British company, uh, that even now, uh, um, a decade after the approval of Sativex, it's still not widely available and is subject to a postal code lottery type of situation with a national, Mm -hmm. you know. As a uh, guy on the inside, because... Uh, you would uh, you probably know that many cannabis users like to lean towards the conspiracy theories, you know, <laughs> and being well, inside like a big farmer. Do you think there's some kind of agenda in the background that prevents uh, cannabis being legalized? Well, not in this respect. I, I, I don't know who makes the rules for NHS, but it would seem mm. to me that uh, if you live in the Midlands um, and could get it, uh, it shouldn't be different in Brixton. Um, you know, that kind of thing, it, it just uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. Is it one nation uh, with equal access? Um, mm. One would hope, you know. So it creates for crazy situations. And I hear mm. regularly now, even from um, families of patients in the UK and elsewhere, um, just saying basically, you know, how do we get access to the medicine we need? And it's just heartbreaking. Mm. Um a huge problem for me is uh, somebody will contact me with a specific medical problem and I might have a very good idea in my mind about what might benefit them, but it doesn't mean at all that it's available where they live. Mm. Yeah, that's got to be frustrating. Do you get many people call you or contact you from the UK asking for advice? I Yes, um, right. I, I still do. Um, you know, and some years ago before Epidiolex was out, um, there was an odd phenomenon that was going on. It wouldn't matter where I was, Europe, South America, anywhere in the States or Canada, there would be a group of mothers of children with Dravet syndrome, um, that were coming to the scientific meetings and looking for relief for their children. Uh, Again, a heartbreaking situation. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, um, now some places Epidiolex is available, um, but um, you know it's not the only agent from cannabis that might help. Uh, right. So, uh, and it's not available everywhere by any means, and uh, subject to all the usual difficulties with cost or access. Yeah, and cost is a, is a big thing as well. We've spoken to many of the mothers in the UK whose children have a intractable epilepsy, and they use cannabis to to help with the symptoms. And we've got uh, a guy in the chat right now, and he's spending six hundred pound a month on his kids' medicine for, for yeah. I epilepsy. just don't know who can manage that. Yeah, it's it's a crazy amount of money. It's it's a shame because the only people missing out are the kids. You know, the kids are missing out on, on medicine which they need. It's a terrible sure. thing. Mm. Do you see it changing anytime soon? I don't know if you know much about the UK law, what goes on over here. Would you think that well, might be changing? Soon? I'd hope so, but mm-hmm. um, quite frankly, the problem is that politicians make the rules, 
Um, and they're usually poorly equipped to be in a position to make be making these decisions. They really should be coming from uh, medics and, and scientists uh, that mm-hmm. know more about it because invariably they get it wrong, uh, yeah. the politicians, that is. Indeed. Yeah, we've seen that happen over and over again. Eh? It's still happening now. But we have a question oh, here in the chat uh, from Chilbert. He, he asks, uh, can Dr. Russo talk a little of his experience working with the late, great Raphael McCollum? Uh, R.I.P. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, it's actually pronounced Meshulam. Um, okay. Yeah, I'd love to talk about him. So uh, Raphael Meshulam, for people who didn't know, was a uh, brilliant scientist. Uh, he was born in Bulgaria. Um, his family was subject to, well, his father spent time in a concentration camp uh, because they were Sephardic Jews. Um, and then in 1949, the family emigrated uh, to Israel and he got his PhD. But uh, he's most famous as the person who discovered uh, the structure and synthesized THC. Mm-hmm. Um, and but that wasn't all. Um, there were a bunch of the other cannabinoids. He was the first one to establish the three-dimensional structure of cannabidiol. Uh, they also discovered cannabigerol, uh, a couple of the cannabinoid acids, and a whole bunch of others. So that would have been enough um, to cap a career. However, um, decades later. Uh, his lab was involved in the discovery of endocannabinoids, endogenous chemicals like THC, um, uh, specifically uh, anandamide and 2-arachidonoglycerol. And this has led to a tremendous um, amount of additional uh, research. Basically, the endocannabinoid system is the homeostatic regulator of physiology. Let me break that down. Mm. Homeostasis is balance. Um, It regulates how all of our basic functions go. Uh, So if there's too much activity in the system, it'll bring it down to a normal level. If a, a system is underactive, it will bring it up to where it needs to be. And this is particularly true in the brain in regulation of almost anything you can imagine. Uh, Modulation of pain, uh, seizure threshold, whether we need to vomit or not, it's got a role in digestion. Uh, Almost any function you can imagine uh, uh, is affected by the endocannabinoid system. But uh, that wasn't all either. He, despite uh, being uh, a bench scientist, he remained involved in clinical applications of cannabinoids. He provided the material uh, that went to Brazil that led to the first studies of cannabidiol to treat epilepsy. And uh, that, you know, happened in the 1970s. And basically it sat on the shelf for 30 years before it was picked up again um, by individual patients and by GW Pharmaceuticals. Uh, Another study... They did. Um, in 1995, they showed that um, THC could be given to children who were getting nausea and vomiting with chemotherapy for cancer, um, that it was uh, almost uniformly effective and with minimal to no side effects. Um, and uh, more recently, several years ago, they showed that cannabidiol had a... Um, the ability to basically reverse graft versus host disease. That's what happens when transplant patients have um, immunological reactions against their own tissues. Right. Um, you know, so a very serious disorder that has been very hard to control. Um, so and cannabis helps um, with that too. Yes, it can wow. in the right formulation. So basically, um, Professor Mishulam had a 60-year uh, career as a scientist, and he was active and basically until the the, uh, the time of his death at age 92 this past March. 
Yeah. Beyond that, he was a wonderful man. Um, he was interested in, in everything. Uh, he had a very expansive um, areas of interest, um, a great sense of humor, and a, a joy to be around. I was privileged to have spent time with him. Well, I tallied it up. Um, 14 different countries we were together, cool. either at conferences <laughs> or um, uh, in, at research meetings. Wow. Did you spend much time with him in those 14 countries? Uh, yeah, I was very fortunate. I mean, when uh, we had these conferences, sometimes it was a smaller group. And uh, if we were staying in the same hotel, uh, you know, we might dine together uh, with his wife, who is also a delightful cool. person. Wow, so imagine I the was... conversations you would have. That's so cool. <laughs> Uh, yeah, everything from, you know, his life uh, during Nazi occupation uh, to how his uncle and other family members escaped. Um, you know, it's it's certainly cinema-worthy uh, history of a uh, great man. Very impressive. And the amount of things he did for cannabis research as well. Sure. Another yeah. resource online, I believe this is available, there's a movie called... Um, the scientist so if people um did a search for the scientist and rafael r-a-p-h-a-e-l mishulam m-e-c-h-o-u-l-a-m they're likely going to find that very interesting guy it would be cool to see a movie about him the, the endocannabinoid system it seems to be something that isn't covered very much in medical school and as a neurologist you must know quite a bit about how it interacts with the brain uh, yeah, I mean, it's a source, again, of real frustration. Um, right. You know, the explanation of what it is and what it does, I did not exaggerate. And you might think that this kind of fun, fundamental mechanism of keeping things in balance would be extremely important for physicians to learn while they're in training. However, um, it's really a minority of places where this is given any uh instruction time at all um and we we've actually queried uh, deans of medical schools about this and the usual answer is uh the curriculum is so extensive now what do you want us to drop so that we can talk about this wow. um so you know maybe they need to add a year uh, mm -hmm. to medical training and unfortunately the same is true in um in postgraduate training programs, um, in internships and residency, um, unless someone has a personal interest in this, they're unlikely to know a lot about it. Um, so it puts doctors in a very difficult position when people come in asking about cannabis. Um, it's likely to get short shrift. Um, the current state of medicine in the United States is basically often that uh, most uh, doctors got 15 minutes per patient. It's not amenable to these in-depth conversations that are necessary to discuss things like cannabis and its therapeutic applications. Mm -hmm. It's just not, not likely going to happen. Mm -hmm. So as a result, there are individual doctors um, who specialize in this. Um, and, um, uh, I, I would, uh, again, cite a website. Uh, it's called CannabisClinicians.org. That's the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. It's mainly a U.S.-based operation. However, they have a search engine to look for doctors um, in a given location, and that does include international members of the organization. Cool. Yeah, definitely a useful resource. We sure. have these clinics here in the UK. I don't know if you know how the uh, system works in the UK, but there's uh, cannabis clinics where you see a specialist, and if you tick all the boxes, you can buy a prescription of cannabis from them. That's how it works. Sure. But uh, again, and I'm not sure they are, and I'm not meaning to impugn anybody's experience, but um, there's similar things in, in various countries around the world. It does not necessarily mean the person has the training or background uh, to mm -hmm. be really good at this mm -hmm. aspect of medicine. 
Um, yeah, so true. an organization like uh, Society of Cannabis Clinicians, to be a member, they have to pass a test showing competency um, in these subject matter areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so after all these years of uh, studying cannabis, uh, are you a cannabis user? Do you uh, grow your own? Or is it just strictly research for you? Well, that's a question I used to hesitate to ask um, because it's uh, <laughs> damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, for years and years, I wasn't using, and people assumed that I was or that I was mm -hmm. stoned all the time. Um, so let me explain. Uh, yes, I smoked cannabis in college, and unlike some, I inhaled frequently, <laughs> deeply, and with malice aforethought. Um, nice. But <laughs> I haven't smoked in many years. Now, mm -hmm. I have been known to vaporize uh, materials or certainly use tinctures or oils um, mm -hmm. when I need it, specifically. Mm -hmm. um, so. You know, I would not call it a recreational pursuit. Um, and, you know, I may try things to see what their effects are. Um, and I would just point out that that was a normal modus operandi in the 19th century. Uh, respected physicians tried many of the things they were using on patients. Uh, at some point in the past, this be became considered uh, a faux pas. I, I really don't understand it. Um, you know, how you might have better insight into what you're giving people if you know what it feels like. Yeah. Um, so, right. So that's my response. It's a good response. You know, people use cannabis for many different reasons. It's good to just be able to use it now and again when you, uh, when you need some medicine. That's how I like to use cannabis nowadays. I used to smoke a ridiculous amount of it. But now I just use it when I when I want to, and I I have a bit of a cold this week, so I'm smoking some CBD cannabis, and it's a uh, it, it helps a little. I think it's good to uh, be able to medicate yourself on you know stuff you grow at home, or in your case, you know, might get it from the dispensary or wherever it is. Yeah, well, it's another aspect. People, um, you know, it can be very therapeutic for patients to be involved in cultivation of their own medicine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people really get into it. and um, You know, it allows them the opportunity, the possibility of uh, Taylor making something that works for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with all the years of research, uh, what's one of the most shocking things that you found with cannabis and the way interacts with the endocannabinoid system uh just its pervasiveness uh, basically it's ubiquitous mm. uh, you know as i mentioned if we look at any aspect of how our bodies work um you'll get to the point where gee lo and behold the endocannabinoid system has an important function here mm. um so you know one by one going through system by system there it is um, so yeah, you'd be hard pressed to think of a bodily function where there isn't a key role for the endocannabinoid system. Yeah. And that's what makes it crazy, but it's not studied so much in medical schools. Sure. You know, Again, a shame. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think you are but, right. That adding a year would, uh, to cover such an extensive thing would be a good thing to do. Maybe. I don't know. Sure. But, um, you know, there's an important concept behind this. Um, there's still a lot of people out there that think that cannabis can't be medicine, that people are just high. And so maybe they're distracted and they don't care about the medical problem that they had. Um, mm. that's absurd. The yeah. reason that cannabis is used so extensively is because it helps with so many things. Um, mm -hmm. so it is true to say that cannabis doesn't really cure very much. However, it treats a wide, wide variety of conditions. And it is exactly because it's working through the endocannabinoid system, which is everywhere. Um, so mm -hmm. that's a simple explanation for why this has found application in so many different disorders. Yeah. And speaking of uh, different things about cannabis treats, what do you think about um, cannabis and the way it appears to uh, treat cancer 
Do you, do you do much research on that? You, do you know anything about that? Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are two aspects here. One is treating symptoms. So it's been known for decades that cannabis has this ability to uh, combat nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, that's uh, pretty solid. Everybody yeah. knows that. Um, but it, it doesn't stop there. Um, you know, again, as a hunger stimulant in cancer conditions, it's a really important um, in treating pain, um, in helping with sleep, which is hard to come by when people are going through such a torturous condition mm -hmm. and its treatment. Um, so that's symptomatic treatment of cancer. However, since the 1970s, it's been known that various cannabinoids kill certain cancer cells. Now, what's unique about this is in contrast to standard chemotherapy, which are generally toxic molecules that we hope will kill the cancer before it kills the patient. Mm -hmm. I mean, that explains why people are losing their hair and sloughing their gut yeah. um, for these treatments. In contrast, with the cannabinoids, they're toxic for cancer cells, but preservative for normal cells. Um, so this is a unique property. Yeah. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is twofold. Number one, usually need a lot. Um, and in the case of THC, this may mean that people have to very slowly become tolerant um, to the psychoactive effects to get up to a high enough dose. Um, however, for the non-intoxicating cannabinoids, CBD, cannabigerol, um, it's much easier to get these higher doses, but again, it remains a problem of access and expense. Yeah. Um, I, I am involved, this is a plug, um, but I will indicate my conflict of interest. I'm the chief medical officer for Indira Pharmaceuticals and DIRA. That's a Canadian company that is developing novel approaches to treatment of cancer uh, with cannabinoids. And that will include cancer pain and also primary treatment uh, of cancer with a novel uh, delivery technique that will home in on uh, cancer areas. So you get more of the medicine uh, at the specific point that it's needed. All right. So, right. Yeah, that is, so I assume that there's studies being done towards that, considering that these medicines being released. Sure. But again, as usual, it takes a lot of time, a lot of mm -hmm. money, a lot of investment. Yeah. And, you know, it's very non-toxic cannabis is as well. So that's uh, at least there's that, you know, it's not going to cause any major damage to anybody. Um, yeah. Right. It's true in general. Um, there are some people that shouldn't use cannabis, particularly THC. And, you know, to keep things in context, we need to mention that, um, you know, it's a, a risk for young people who might have a first degree relative with schizophrenia. Um, okay. There also is a rare condition called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, mm -hmm. uh, where people become tolerant to high doses of cannabis and develop a syndrome of nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and hot water bathing. Um, but it's a very serious condition. It mm. causes extreme expense and disruption of people's lives. Um, right now, the only surefire way to deal with that is abstention from cannabis. Yeah. So when people say that it has no side effects, that unfortunately is not true. Mm -hmm. However, it is true to say that in comparison to most medicines, that the cannabinoids are extremely non-toxic. Yeah. The, the cannabis community would often disagree about the addictiveness of cannabis as well. Some people think that it's not addictive at all, and there's others that think that, that it is. Have you done any research on that? What is your take on the addictiveness uh, sure. of cannabis? Well, again, um, let's use the example of people with this cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, these are people that fulfill the criteria of cannabis use disorder or addiction. Um, however, the figures in the literature are somewhat skewed. Uh, let me explain. I think this is important. 
So the conventional wisdom that you will hear is that 9% of people who use cannabis become addicted or dependent. However, um, that's based on figures from the states, and uh, it includes about, uh, when this was last examined, 60% of people um, uh, in that situation were in enforced treatment programs as an alternative to carceration. Mm-hmm. So you've got to at least cut that in half immediately. So it, mm-hmm. a more likely figure is under 5% of people who would um, try cannabis would show criteria of becoming um, dependent. However, again, let's keep that in context. Let's say that someone tries it, they like it, they find it useful um, to them in some capacity. In other words, they may be treating something that hasn't mm-hmm. previously been addressed, such mm-hmm. as attention deficit disorder or depression or anxiety. Um, PTSD now, or lots right. of different things, yeah. So can you call that dependency? It would be really, you know, addiction or dependency. Part of the definitions are uh, that it creates a dysfunction in the person's life. Uh, in other words, it's interfering with their ability to work or to maintain social relationships or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What you know, general uh, problematic situations. Um, so yes, it occurs. However, it's not as prevalent um, as people might imagine, and it is nothing like dependency on other substances and mm-hmm. uh you know that's starkly apparent in relation to withdrawal mm-hmm. um Absolutely. you know when people are are addicted to benzodiazepines like uh, valium diazepam um they can die uh from withdrawal yeah. uh, everyone knows uh how quitting cold turkey how tough that is for someone with an opioid addiction mm-hmm. or how rough it is um, people, uh, alcoholics going through withdrawal with delirium tremens, DTs, yes. the old pink elephants. There are no pink elephants with cannabis withdrawal. Mm-hmm. When people withdraw from cannabis, um, may not do a lot. Uh, they might be nervous or irritable or have vivid dreams for a few days, but uh, mm-hmm. nobody dies. That's um, right, yeah. So it's quite different. Mm-hmm. You know, and with that being said, it's why why do you think cannabis has been rejected as a medicine for so long? Because it it has very few side effects, and it uh, helps with lots of different issues. So, what would what would your uh, opinion be on why it's been kept away from medicine for so long? Uh, well, it's a political problem, uh, you know, and a certain a reputational problem, and um it well you know it's a situation where i guess our western societies think it's okay to get blind drunk Mm -hmm. um but getting a little bit high um is a problem you know in the states i i often joke that um the politicians who run things are afraid of cannabis because they think that their kids will suddenly turn into democrats (laughs) Yeah, I yeah, think I've heard be that true. one before. Yeah, it, it could be true. No, they will become liberals. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, peace and love. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting one for sure. Is it? It's just a shame that it's been kept away from being used as a medicine for so long because it, it just obviously does so many good things. Do you think that human beings have uh, like coexisted and used cannabis for millions of years throughout evolution? Or do you think it's a reasonably new thing? Uh, well, it depends on who you ask. I mean, we can clearly document use for over 4,000 years. To me, that just indicates that we haven't seen all the right archaeology yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has been so widespread. Also, there's this misconception that it was just an Asian plant. Um, their pollen records... Uh, showing cannabis in Europe um, before the Ice Age. Um, so, you know, this has been around. Um, the plant is 30 million years old. 
uh, human species, I think, is 1.6 million years old. Hmm. So it's been around a lot longer than us. We have been responsible for spreading it around a good bit and um, changing its character through selective breeding. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I think both species have benefited. That's right. Yeah, it's like dogs and humans, you know, just working together. Sure. For greater good, you know. I just find it amazing about the whole endocannabinoid system, you know, the way we have this thing in our body that reacts with the cannabinoids on the cannabis plants and it can do so much for us. It's it's an amazing concept. Right. I mean, we haven't even touched on other aspects of cannabis cultivation, uh, its use as a fiber. Um, yeah. The roots have medicinal properties of their own. Then there's nutrition related to cannabis seed. Uh, you know, it's one of the most complete natural proteins. Uh, it's got all the amino acids you need and essential fatty acids um, that are uh, particularly gamma-linolenic acid. Very rare in nature. It's in mother's milk. It's in borage seed. It's in evening primrose oil and in cannabis seed, but hard to find otherwise. It's just incredible the, the amount of things that it. The, it's hard to think of any other plant that comes close to the things that cannabis can do for us. Uh, that's right. I mean, I call it the proverbial desert island plant. You know, the question, if you were stuck <laughs> on a desert island and had only one plant, what you would choose? What would you choose? Cannabis is a clear winner uh, mm. with its ability to have medicine, nutrition, fiber. Um, yeah, no, it. it it has it all. Incredible. And uh, Job asked a good question here in the chat as well. And I know this is uh, something that you've probably seen you in a video about it before. Uh, ask, can Dr. Russo talk about cannabis used to treat stomach disorders like IBS? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've written about this extensively, and it gives me a chance to provide another plug. Um, <laughs> all of my Articles and book chapters are available free online at ethanrusso.org. So that's E-T-H-A-N-R-U-S-S-O.org. Just hit the library tab, and there are a series of pages, and there's also a search engine there. Um, But, yeah, um, some time ago I developed a theory of um, what we call endocannabinoid clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. And it occurred to me that um, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, and migraine all had a lot in common. So these are three conditions, what are called diagnoses of exclusion. That means that there's no specific test. Um, You have a pattern of disease. And if we do labs, et cetera, and don't see anything else, um, you get one of these labels. What they also have in common is their pain conditions with seeming oversensitivity of the tissues uh, without any visible tissue abnormality. Um, they tend to occur in the same people. Um, and as a neurologist, I was well aware that um, certain disorders are due to deficiencies of neurotransmitters. So although this is really overly simplistic, we don't have enough acetylcholine, the memory molecule in dementia, Alzheimer's disease. There's not enough dopamine in Parkinson's disease. And um, among other things in depression, there's not enough serotonin. So it occurred to me that if there's a deficiency of these other neurotransmitters, why not a deficiency of endocannabinoids? Um, And Mm -hmm. if there were such a condition, what would it look like? Well, under those conditions, we would expect the person to have pain uh, where they shouldn't because they don't have an injury. Um, They'd have disrupted digestion. Um, They'd have an oversensitivity of the eyes to light. Uh, um, All of these things um, are explained by this um, hypothetical endocannabinoid deficiency. So I came up with this about 2001. Subsequently, um, there's been a lot of uh, investigation that supports the concept 
Uh, to give one example, in migraine patients who had lumbar punctures in Italy, they showed that um, the migraine people had a depletion of anandamide, one of the endocannabinoids, compared to people who did not. Um, and it was a very striking difference. Um, so IBS, for people who don't know, is called irritable bowel syndrome. It's the most common condition for which people go to gastroenterologists. And it's characterized by gut pain um, and uh, associated with diarrhea or constipation or both in a given individual. Um, now, it sounds simple enough, but it really is very harmful to a person's quality of life. There have been a number of prescription drugs for this, but uh, they haven't always worked so well. A couple were yanked from the market. Uh -huh. We know that the endocannabinoid system uh, is responsible for modulating uh, gut movement and secretion of uh, fluid. Uh, these are both disturbed uh, in irritable bowel syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, so, and the, the final thing that, that unites these different conditions is that people use cannabis to advantage to treat them. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's an interesting concept. Uh, mm -hmm. But a lot of people with IBS uh, get good relief from uh, cannabis preparations. Nice. So, what are you? Are you still doing studies? Are you just an author now, or what do you? Uh, what do you do with, with cannabis now? No, I'm very busy. Um, yeah. You know, as as we mentioned, um, I'm very interested in cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Right. Um, you know, I for a very long time have been a proponent of cannabis as medicine. I think it's necessary again to keep things in context and recognize where cannabis can be a problem. And that is uh -huh. one area as mentioned, um, involved, uh, with Andira pharmaceuticals in cancer treatment, also treatment of wounds and infectious diseases that are antibiotic resistant. We're also working with another Canadian company called Canerta, C-A-N-U-R-T-A on a different set of compounds on cannabis called the canflavins. So these are non-psychoactive compounds. Um, they're flavonoids. Flavonoids are the things from plants <clears throat> that often um, provide their color, you know, so they're in berries and nuts and things like this. Uh, but they have very strong antioxidant uh, properties and may be useful in treating all kinds of inflammatory conditions and cancer again. So with uh, cannabis hypermesis uh, as well, do you, have, has there been any correlation between using neem oil and people getting the cannabis hypermesis? Because I've heard that yeah, a few times as well. That's not an explanation. Um, you know, I... I suppose that there could be toxicity associated with a poorly put together neem oil. <clears throat> also, the thing that people have implicated are pesticides. It's true that pesticides can be toxic to humans, but the symptoms thereof don't match CHS at all. Right. And I, I've written about that um, at ethanrusso.org in the library. There's a myth-busting cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Is one of the articles that addresses some of these misconceptions. That's good. As it yeah. turns out, we have found that uh, CHS seems to have a genetic basis. We compared people who had this to high-volume cannabis users who didn't have the symptoms and found five mutations uh, that were statistically significantly different in one group to the other. Um, that help explain what is going on with CHS. Wow. So like uh, just genetic markers or something. Exactly. Hmm. And Chubb asks, Chubb has got loads of nice questions here today. He asks, how long before we fully understand the rest of the cannabinoids? Also, how they synergize with spe uh, specific terpenes, flavonoids, combinations, the entourage effect. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's ongoing work. Um, as an example of the latter, um, 
Uh, over the last few years, I've been collaborating with Ryan Vondre, B-A-N-D-R-E-Y, at Johns Hopkins, Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. We're trying to do a deconstruction, reconstruction of THC and specific terpenoids to show how the latter modulate THC effects. Um, and then as for the rest, keep in mind, if we only know a lot about how 12 cannabinoids from the plant work, it means we've got 100, 100, uh, <laughs> 148 to go. Now, wow. some of these are only present in, in trace amounts, but it doesn't mean they won't be useful. Mm -hmm. And it may be that we can selectively breed for some of these others. Um, I mean, an example would be uh, the advent of cannabigerol or CBG. Um, it's sort of the mother of all cannabinoids. And um, normally the plant doesn't stop there. It goes on to THC and, and CBD especially. But there are some plants that are bred uh, to sort of stop at CBG. And it's turning out to be extremely useful on a wide variety of conditions, including pain conditions, and particularly in treating anxiety without sedation or addiction. With the way cannabis has changed over the however many centuries, and we've bred cannabis specifically to give more THC out because of the legality and people want you know more bang for their buck, as they say. Do you think uh, the cannabis plant as it is with all this THC and it's much different than the cannabis, say, 250,000 years ago, do you think there would have been more of a balance of these cannabinoids, but they've slowly yeah, been Yeah, it's bred. absolutely the case. Yeah. Right. Now, that, that can be demonstrated, um, you know, uh, and, you know, even in my lifetime, back in the 70s, um, for example, the hashish that came from Morocco and Afghanistan was one-to-one -one mixtures of THC and CBD. And mm. for many years, it was THC only until about 15 years ago when people became interested in CBD again. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the influence of breeding has been towards higher and higher THC, uh, which has its uses. However, it really is ignoring the vast potential of the plant otherwise um so um there's so much more to give there uh we just have to have uh the restraints lift lifted so that we mm -hmm. can better research and get some of these things commercially available mm -hmm. you think them days are coming anytime soon i keep hoping but again i'm old enough that in the States in the 70s, we were very close to decriminalization. Uh, then the Reagan regime came in and uh, wasn't two steps back. It was about 200 steps back. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're just slowly recovering from that whole thing. And it could happen yeah. again. Oh, gosh, I mean, don't say I, that. Don't say that. <laughs> well, I, don't get me started on uh, bad politics. And no. bad politicians and the influence mm. they can have on all this. Absolutely. So I'm hoping for the best, but I'm realistic that, again, because uh, politicians are making the, the decisions rather than informed professionals, um, mm -hmm. uh, it it's problematic. Yeah. And it's frustrating, too. Especially when you Absolutely. see them say just silly things, especially right. about cannabis. You know, it's like you, you have all the resources you need to speak to all of the, the experts in the top of the field around the world, and you decide not to use it and just come up with an ignorant stance that just persecutes more people. It's strange the way it works, isn't it? You, you think strange. that, you know, just a little Google search. Oh, like, I need to make my mind up here about what I should do for cannabis in the country. Let's take a look on Google and see who the experts are. And then they can reach out to guys like you who, who have been researching this for decades and they know that you have the right opinion. It's just crazy that they don't do things like that when the resources were available to do so. Well, yeah, I'm, I, they haven't gotten in touch with me yet. <laughs> one day, one day.
Do you think it's going to be longer until they federally legalise it? Well, yeah, as you said, it's, it may be. Yeah, it could even go backwards. It's a scary thought to think that it could go backwards. Yeah, I, yeah. I make no predictions there. Mm-hmm. Well, if you don't get your hopes up, then you're not disappointed. You know, it's, well, it's a good way to go um, sometimes. I mean, it's a sure winner with the public. So, you mm-hmm. know, if the politicians were really smart, they'd get on board with what's going to be a good policy that will also be popular. Uh-huh. And be a good boost to the economy as well. We've, uh, yeah, absolutely. Lounges and just so much money being spent on a whole different different industry. It's, right. It's a big thing here in the UK. We, you know, we have the pubs here in the UK, and loads of them were closed over the last twenty years. There's got to be a small percentage left, and a way we can bring some of those pubs back and bring jobs back to the high street, as they say, is to legalize well, cannabis. Yeah, they're still the best places to eat. Hmm. Hmm. A good pub lunch, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Do you visit the UK often? Well, I, I haven't lately, but uh, I was going about four times a year while I was uh, with GW. Oh, cool. Yeah, of course. So you, you don't do any work with them anymore? That's, uh, past the uh, no, not since 2014. Right. You've written how many books now? Let's let's uh, go to that before we go. How many books have you written? Because it seems to be quite a bit. Up on well... I uh, yeah, let's put it in context. Um, I I've really written two books and edited and contributed to another five, so right. seven overall. Um, one was a novel, one was a book on psychotropic herbs, and the rest were about cannabis. Um, but there are about sixty articles at the library um, online, um, and so you know, books are one thing. It's the problem is they're expensive. Not everybody buys them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for putting research out there, um, the gold standard are peer-reviewed journal articles, and so I put most of my efforts there. Awesome, and we you can find those over on your website, right? Correct. That's a, and that was ethanrusso.org. Is that that we said? Right. And cool. uh, yeah, our company web website is uh, Credo Science. That's C R E D O dash science um, dot com. And nice. so there's more information there about the work that we're trying to do. And of course, you have lectures all over YouTube as well, right? Ah, uh, right. Yeah. Um, video searches. Uh, there's a lot of stuff. So. Yeah, if people want to hear me talk more, <laughs> they can find plenty. Yeah, but I'm sure they do. You, you must have so much more knowledge that we still have to pick out of your mind yet after studying for cannabis with cannabis for so long. It's, well, my my hope is that it makes a difference for someone. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've made a difference for many people with the work that you've done. It's incredible. It's inspirational work because you've been doing it over times where people wasn't allowed to do it, you know? And it's a little bit easier now to do this kind of research in places because the laws are slowly changing. But for a long time, you must have suffered some stigma, like from family and friends for the research that you've done. You ever found that? Um, well, again, I hear from people all over the world and, um, yeah, I mean, part of the problem is that a lot of people don't change their mind about cannabis until they need it or mm. someone close to them has needed it and they've seen what a remarkable difference it can make for them. Yeah, you know, I think that's the way of a lot of things. You know, people only really pay attention when it affects them somehow. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I will let you go then, Dr. Russo. And just thank you again for coming to join us. I really appreciate you coming to take some time and and inform us about all this stuff. It's been a really insightful interview. Thank you very much. Well, thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. I hope we can do it again sometime in the future when I don't have a cold and when Monkey's back. That would be cool. (laughs) Sure, let's plan on it. Yeah, I'll give you a shout on the email. But yeah, just one more time. Thank you again for coming to join us, Doctor. I appreciate it. And everybody just gonna wave. Everybody wave at, Do- at Doctor Russo. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> yeah, have a good day, Doctor. Thank you again.
And there we go, everybody. That was Dr. Ethan Russo. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you want to know more about Dr. Ethan Russo, then just head over to his website, which is ethanrusso.org. E-T-H-A-N-R-U-S-S-O.org. And you'll find everything you need to know about him over there. You can also find Dr. Russo out there on YouTube as well. So if you just do a Google search for Ethan Russo, you'll find everything you need to know about this guy. Again, it was a really cool interview and I massively enjoyed it and I hope we can do it again in the future. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you again for being here. Thank you for downloading the show. Thank you for listening, not just to this interview, but to all of the interviews that we do out there. And of course, the Cannabis News. Just thank you for all the downloads that we have. We appreciate you, man. Stay high, stay safe, and we'll catch you on the next one. Goodbye. <laughs>